speak on my, uh, that hangs on my ears and makes it easier to move around, but somebody lost it. Um, I won't name the person, but it's me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somebody yeah, misplaced it temporarily. I lost it, just to say, just to be honest. So you can pray that we can find the mic, but, but I'll make my uh, best effort to stay anchored to this mic so you can hear me. Uh, we are going through the Book of Romans, and we are in Chapter 11. So as uh, you're turning there, just first, I want to say I'm very excited for our baptism on Saturday. Uh, I think we have six people um, ready to be baptized, uh, so that's fantastic. Just grateful to the Lord. Um, grateful to the Lord that he's preserved us through the pandemic and all the things we've faced, that this church has walked together through this. Um, I'm just so grateful. And I'm grateful that God's adding to our numbers, uh, people coming to faith, uh, people being added to our church. Um, He's very good to us and very faithful. So, so come celebrate with us Saturday, 6 o'clock, New Life uh, Christian Assembly. That's our sister, our sister church, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they have a baptismal, so that's why we're going there. We don't yet have one here. I don't know if we'll ever be able to do one here, but that would be great someday to be able to baptize here. But please join us. It'll be a wonderful celebration. So back to Romans 11. We're making our way through the book of Romans. We as a church spend most of our time going through the books of the Bible, and it forces us to preach some of the things that maybe we wouldn't choose to preach otherwise, uh, like Romans 11. Uh, but Romans 11 is full of God's truth, and it's God's word. And so he has things for us. This is a challenging chapter. We're preaching the whole thing at once uh, because we want you to hear the whole argument that Paul's making. So we've approached Romans that way. I know it makes it a little harder at times to hear a lot of information but we believe these chunks fit together, and they give us a really good view of the forest. Um, so, so if you have tree-level questions, we do want to answer those, and you can simply text uh, the church, 978-374-6562, main number of the church. You'll find it on the web and on other, uh, other material. But go ahead and text any specific question you have, and we will, as we did uh, the other time, I think in Chapter 9, actually, uh, I'll do short video answers for those and post those so you can have those answers, uh, those questions answered, Lord willing. But we're in chapter 11, we're going to dig into God's word. Uh, this is an important chapter in the Bible that explains a lot of things that maybe are hanging out there for questions. Um, I think we need to understand the background. Uh, imagine, uh, let me tell you a, a story, lead you through an illustration that I think will help us get the background. Imagine uh, that you're reading the classic Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And you're reading through it and you love the story, you get past all those encounters with the ghosts of different Christmases, past, present, and future, and, and you're looking forward to the radical change that will come in, in Ebenezer Scrooge's life. But instead of the usual ending, your version has him reverting to his old ways, going back to being a greedy miser, mistreating Bob Cratchit, and saying bah humbug to everybody. What would you think or feel at that moment in the story? You'd, you'd be very disappointed. What, what's going on here? The, the whole story obviously has been leading to this point, right? Of, of his redemption and his change. And, and, and that's what this is all about. And here in the story, now Ebenezer's not doing what he ought to do. And I think if you get that, I think you're going to be able to get the sentiment behind the questions that have driven chapters 9 through 11. The church in Rome was a church comprised of Jews and Gentiles together. And, and Paul has been explaining this wonderful message of the gospel, this amazing truth of the fulfillment of the promises in Christ himself. 
and the righteousness we have by faith alone, uh, through grace alone, and Christ alone. And of course, you're, you're in the story, you're expecting the next thing to happen, that, that the people who, who are the recipients of these promises at the core, the, the Jewish people, are going to respond. And it's like reading the Christmas carol and having Ebenezer not respond, to look at history in their shoes, and even to this day as well, to wonder why. Why, why is it happening this way? And so Paul, in these three chapters, is answering that question. And this chapter, chapter 11, will really help us understand the plan for Israel and really the whole church. Um, so let's pray, and we'll dig into God's word. We'll take a section at a time um, and learn from Romans 11. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give us answers. God, you don't uh, shirk from answering the hardest questions we might have. And though there are deep waters here in chapter 11, Lord, we know you have truth for us. So teach us, help us to understand, and most importantly, to be transformed by your word. You have things for us here today, all of us individually. So help me to teach and proclaim faithfully. Spirit of God, empower me and empower us to receive your word, to respond and be changed by you. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm just going to read chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, the very beginning. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knees, the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would, that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. That's Romans 11, verses 1 through 10. What we're going to see here. Uh, as I said, is that God has a plan for his people Israel. There are different elements in this plan, so we're just going to walk through the chapter and learn. So first, his plan is not rejection, but a remnant. Not rejection, but a remnant. Last week we looked at chapter 10, and chapter 10 focused on the aspects of human responsibility uh, that factored into understanding why Israel was not responding to the gospel. We learned about these different aspects, the understanding the gospel rightly. Uh, we, we learned about the, the need for sending, the need for proclamation, the need for hearing, the need for believing, uh, and then the need for calling on the Lord. And those are the human aspects of, of how salvation occurs. And so chapter 9 was more on the sovereignty of God. Chapter 10 is on human responsibility. And we learned in that chapter that, that by and large, Israel had failed to respond to the gospel, to obey the gospel. Though uh, they hadn't understood to a degree, and they certainly had heard, they had refused. And as a result, they were not receiving salvation. So that's the, the simple answer on the human level, that they were not responding appropriately. 
And as a result, we saw in chapter 10, God had turned to the Gentiles. He had turned to the people who, who actually didn't have understanding. So unexpectedly in some ways, he had turned from those who should have had understanding, should have heard, should have called, but didn't. Now he was turning to those that didn't have understanding and working miraculously in their lives and in the Gentile people to draw them to himself. So this follows on in chapter 11, verse 1. And again, the early Bible, there's no chapter division, so it falls right from what we saw in chapter 10. The question I ask then, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected his people? And Paul's first answer is to say, by no means. Now, that doesn't quite communicate what Paul was saying. By no means, it, it like... Does anyone here, when, when somebody says, I'd like to do this, they say, you, and they can't do it, like, you know, your teenager wants to borrow the car, and they don't have their license, you say, by no means. Do you, does anyone say that? No. What do you say? No way. No way. Sorry. Maybe someday, but no way. Never. Well, that's more of what Paul says. It's literally uh, doesn't exist. That's the word, but it's a strong reply. It's, a, it's not by no means. That sounds too polite. It's no way, never. And so Paul's first answer to this idea that God has rejected his people is to say emphatically and clearly, lest we misunderstand, no way, never. And so he's going to go on to explain how that's true to illustrate why he can be so emphatic. And his first answer is to say that I myself am an Israelite. I am case in point that it's not true. He has not rejected his people because here I am, a Jewish person who believes. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a, I'm a thoroughly Jewish person, and I have come to faith in Jesus. So God has not rejected his people in some sort of absolute entire way. No, he has saved people like Paul. Secondly, he goes on to say, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew in, in verse two. It's interesting. He answers, has God rejected his people by saying God has not rejected his people and then adds whom he foreknew. What is Paul saying there? What Paul is saying in that, that use of that word foreknew, is a, a sense of foreknowing in terms of a covenantal way. God's seen his people in his love and in his mercy and in his plans and setting his affection on them. That's the idea. God foreknew them. He saw them. He knew all this history. He knew all that was going to happen. He knew when he gave those promises to Abraham to bless him and his descendants that there would be a future time when, yes, many would reject the good news of Christ, who is the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. And yet he foreknew them, he saw them, he sees them as his covenant people, and he's not stopped regarding them in that sense. That's what Paul means when he says, those whom he foreknew. We're going to see this worked out through the chapter here. That God has a commitment in his call to ethnic Israel to follow through on these promises. Now he goes on in, in this section to talk about how God is actively working to preserve a remnant. And so that's what he's saying later on. Since I can't wander, I've got to pull the big Bible up here. Um, he's going to say, uh, he's quoting about Elijah. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. And so he's citing in Elijah's day 
when Elijah said, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Elijah experienced this sense that I'm the only one of all the, all the Jewish people, all these people you've called to believe and follow. I'm the only one who's left. Everyone else is running after Baal. And, and to run after Baal was terribly evil. It's not just uh, getting confused a little bit about you know, who is the true deity. This is, a, this is giving yourself to this false demonic entity, sacrificing children to this entity and all that goes with it. So this is, this is very serious apostasy that's gone on in Israel in Elijah's day. And Elijah's saying, I'm the only one left. And Paul cites this. And he says, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That God is saying to Elijah in that day that, no, Elijah, you're not the only one. You might feel like that at times, but the reality is I've kept 7,000 men, and, and, and perhaps there's more than that. There's women as well. The idea is that God has been faithful to keep people who otherwise would run with the rest of the gang down the wrong road, to keep people for himself, to rescue them from that, to keep them as his covenant people. And so he says, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. So Paul, speaking of his day, that there is a remnant chosen by grace. That God, in his grace, when everybody else was running the wrong way, and these people would have run, these, these 7,000 plus themselves would have run with that group, by grace and his mercy, not because they deserve it, because in and of themselves, we've learned in and of ourselves, none of us can merit God's favor and grace. All of us are guilty as charged if we're honest with ourselves before a good and holy God. So nobody has a claim to be part of the family of God. And actually, apart from God's work, none of us would desire it. And yet, by, because of the grace of God, because he is a gracious God, because he delights in having mercy on those who don't deserve it and pouring out grace and preserving people for himself. Because of grace, he's chased down these 7,000 plus. And because of his grace in Paul's day, he's chased down probably thousands. And because of his grace, he's chased down thousands and thousands in our lives as well. The reality is that God it continues to preserve a remnant among the Jewish people for himself, people who believe in Christ. The numbers, they estimate there's 150,000, perhaps more, uh, Jewish believers in the world today. A survey was done by Barna recently. One out of five American Jewish young people believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. One out of five. That's 20%. Barna did the, you can take a look, Barna did the survey of American Jews, basically millennials and younger. That's, that's fantastic. And we have known and had the privilege of having many Jewish believers in our church over the years. Um, and so God is at work. God is actively pursuing people to rescue them, to, to maintain this remnant. And really, that's the reality for all of us. Actually, I shouldn't close my Bible because I'll need it. That's the reality for all of us, that God is the one who's actively pursuing sinners. He's the one who's graciously working. And it's really important to remember that. And it's really important to, to recognize that because at times we can feel like Elijah, right? We can feel like, what's happening around us? 
What's going on in our world? Where, where are those values that, that are precious? They're, they're disintegrating. Where are the believers? What's happening? And this passage teaches us, despite the fact that it might seem like things are going off the rails, God is still God. And despite our best efforts to run the other direction, he continues to run after people to rescue them. And so it may seem dark, but it's never darkest because God is always God and he is light. The darkness is never totally dark and there is always a dawn coming because there is a God who is gracious and merciful. We don't deserve the dawn he brings, but he is ever working this way in our world. And this chapter, though full of some pretty heavy stuff to help us explain these realities, is full of hope. We're going to see as we go through. And so let me encourage you, when you feel discouraged, when you feel like the darkness is enveloping, you remember this truth that God will refuse to let it be as dark as it could be. He will have a remnant at least that he rescues and he pursues. There, there is never as dark as it feels or seems because God is real and sovereign and pursuing undeserving sinners always. Second, let's look at verses 11 through 15. Paul continues to answer the question um, about Israel. He says in verse 11, So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Again, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if... Their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So Paul is answering the question, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, have they stumbled to the point of utter and eternal ruin? Is it a done deal for Israel? Can we never expect anything but a remnant should we just expect a remnant from here on out is there something else is God done with his plans for ethnic Israel once and for all and again he answers no way never rather something else is going on it's it's there's a plan at work in all this is what he's saying here and he begins to unfold the plan he says through their trespass salvation has come to the Gentiles and then he, he says, uh, their trespass means riches for the world. Their failure means riches for the Gentiles. It's really the, a parallel thing. Saying that the rejection of the Jewish people, uh, by and large, of the gospel, their trespass, their failure in this way as a nation to receive the Messiah, Jesus, means blessing for the Gentiles. This is an important part of Paul's answer here, and, and I think it's important to, to think about it and, and look at what he's saying and understand it and really to understand what's going on even now. And this is in line with how Paul operated in what he said in really the, the, the scriptures. He says in Romans 1.16 at the beginning, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Wonderful truth, but there's more to this verse. It says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so this idea of the gospel being for the Jew first is prominent in Scripture, and that's important for us to hear. 
I think, to get chapter 11 and to get what's going on. It's to the Jew first. And this was Paul's practice, if you read through the book of Acts, right? When he came into a city, where did he go first? To the synagogue. And he proclaimed the gospel to the Jews and the God-fearers who were part of the synagogue first, before he went anywhere else. And he persisted in that until they rejected him and cast him out of the synagogue. Then he would go to the Gentiles. He did that in city after city. And he's the apostle to the Gentiles, by the way. He's been commissioned to go to the Gentiles, but he has a method of, of approach that he goes to the Jew first. And this is also Jesus' approach. The ministry of Jesus, he really didn't minister to Gentiles. And in one of the, the few pl places where he did, there was a Syrophoenician woman who comes to him and is asking for help for, for uh, her daughter to be delivered from a demon. And Jesus says that the bread is for the children to eat first. Isn't that interesting? Now, it doesn't mean he doesn't have compassion on this woman. If you read the story, he, he's actually prompting her. Uh, and she's, she's going to be an example of faith. And often that's what you see in the Gospels. These Gentiles have much faith, the ones that come to Jesus. But he's maintaining the point that the bread is for the children first. And now she's persistent and she puts herself in the place, well, well the dogs around the table get to eat the crumbs. So please take note of me. And Jesus responds to her and heals her daughter. But the point related to Romans 11 is the priority of first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. This is an important thing in Scripture, and this is part of God's plan. The promises indeed are for the Jews first. They are the chosen people. God is, has reached them and worked in them and been faithful to preserve them and brought Christ from them to us. And there's a plan that God has to bring the gospel to them, but they have rejected the gospel by and large. And then in that he has turned to go to the Gentiles and to have a season of reaching the Gentile world. And so Paul is saying if it weren't for them rejecting the gospel, that we, the gospel wouldn't have come to us, at least not yet. And God in his sovereignty over all these things, again, human choice is part of this, but in his sovereignty there's a plan to bring the gospel really to all peoples, to reach the full number of Gentiles and then the full number of Jews. So that's what Paul is getting at here. There is a future hope for the Jews, but there is a plan. There's a, there's a progress of the plan that God has sovereignly designed, and that's what's going on. We are to see that the riches of the gospel go to the Gentiles because of the trespass and failure of the Jews to receive the gospel. But there is a future hope for the Jews beyond a remnant indeed. And we see this here. First off, Paul says in verses 11 and 14 that he wants to make his fellow Jews jealous. He is thinking perhaps... If God will work among the Gentiles through my ministry in such a way that the, the blessings of the gospel and, the, and the, the fullness of life and trust in Christ and the fruit that that produces will, will cause my Jewish uh, brethren to look at the church and say, wow, there's something going on here. This does look indeed like maybe Jesus is the Messiah. And the, perhaps they will come to him. But Paul says more than this. He isn't just hoping that some come to faith because in the context of saying that, he says some profound things like in verse 12. We could, I think we have this to project. Now, if the, their trespasses mean riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So if their rejection means that the gospel goes to the Gentiles, and then you have this time, this, this uh, eon of, of time of, of the gospel going to the Gentiles, what will, what will their um, 
sorry, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So there's full inclusion coming at the end of this. It's, it's inclusion. What does that mean? It's inclusion in Christ, in the promises. And it's a full inclusion. It's not a partial, it's not a remnant. It's a full inclusion. And then verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, the Gentile world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? What's that? talking of. It's speaking of the resurrection, the final resurrection, the final finishing summation of all things. And so as Paul is saying that the, the result here will be the full inclusion of the Jews and then the final resurrection. The end will come. That's the plan. That's what he's doing here. He's laying out this plan. The gospel goes forward. It is offered to the Jews. The Jews reject it. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. Full number of the Gentiles come. That work gets finished and now there's a, a revival among the Jewish people of faith in Jesus as Messiah and then the full number comes in and then the resurrection happens. That's what's being said here. That's the truth that's going on. The full inclusion and acceptance will mean a completion of the harvest of the Gentiles, by the way, and, and just to recognize the, the, what that harvest looks like, it's the full number, the word full number, full inclusion is used here, full inclusion of the, of the Jews at the end, full number of the Gentiles. And, and what does that number look like? Is it two or three? Well, it's at least that, because there's more than two or three here. The number is countless. As best we can determine in Revelation, as we look at the numbers there, it's a countless number that's worshiping. It's a countless number that's worshiping there. Likely, I would say, in the trillions, just based on a number of things. That's a whole other thing we can talk about, what that number is. It's myriads and myriads of angels, thousands of thousands of angels, and there's correlation with angels and, and the people of God and so forth. And it's a countless number that can't be numbered. So this is, a, this is a huge number. Full number of the Gentiles is a huge number. And then at the end, when the Lord has worked in the world, Great Commission has gone to all the, the nations, all the Gentiles, then there will be this harvest of, of probably hundreds of millions of Jews throughout the world, and perhaps even to a person, faith in Christ. Now he's going to say that later on in our chapter, we'll see verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. So what do we do with this information? What does it mean to us? Well, it's an answer to the question, right? But it's more than academic. I think first it should just encourage us. Things may look dark and we might be concerned, why haven't they come to faith? And God's saying, I'm in control and there's a plan here. And a, and a full number are going to come to faith among the Gentiles. And a complete number, even all of Israel, will come to faith at the end. God has a plan, and this plan will come to pass. And we have a role in the plan. We, we find our place in this plan as believers and as a local church. Jesus told us to make disciples of all nations. Part of the plan is that the gospel would go to all peoples, all different ethnic groups. I would say even all villages throughout the whole globe. There's meant to be a vital witness of the church among, I would say, even every village in the whole world. A people who are trusting in Christ and are experiencing transformation. This is to go forward. We're to multiply the image of Christ among all peoples. This is the original, the original mission of mankind, right? God created us in his image. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Now go to the whole world. Fill the whole world with my image. 
Now we fell into sin. In our sin, we rejected the Lord, the very source and reality of the image in us. And we, we can't in any way image him significantly without him. And yet Christ has come as the perfect human being, has imaged God perfectly, and has borne in himself the corrupted image of us in our sins, took our sins upon himself, died in our place to satisfy perfect justice for our sins, that through simple faith in him we can be forgiven and included in Christ and now empowered in him and his life and the very spirit of God dwelling in us to image Christ, to, to show others what he looks like, both individually and more importantly, corporately as a church. And this image is to be multiplied throughout the globe. That's what, that's what the Great Commission is about. Multiply this image, mature it, and multiply it everywhere to fill up the whole globe with the image of Christ. That's the mission. That's what we're called to do. And, and we see it throughout Scripture. Ephesians 4, the, the church is to be built up to mature manhood. The, the church, the whole church, but local churches to be built up to mature manhood. Where did it look like Jesus? By his grace in the truth of the gospel. And Paul talks about the jealousy. There's a redemptive jealousy that's at work here that Paul's referring to. He's hoping to make his fellow Jews jealous. I believe that the way this will be fulfilled is in, is in the end, as the Lord fulfills his promise, the gospel does go to all peoples, and that there is a maturity among all peoples where we do image Christ corporately uh, as a whole church and as local churches and as individuals. There'll, there'll be something to look at to behold. And I believe the Lord will use that to stir Jewish people to jealousy. I see something here of what I've heard from the scripture. I see it at work here. Perhaps this is the real deal. And I think the Lord would use that. I, I don't know exactly how he'll do it, but as I line up these things in scripture, that's what I see happening. And so the fulfillment of what we're seeing here will come through the church, the largely Gentile church, not entirely, but largely Gentile church, maturing and multiplying throughout the globe to fulfill that number, to reach all peoples, and then to image Christ, to, to reach a maturity that will, will cause Israel to, in a redemptive way, be jealous, and then a final full harvest, and then the resurrection. And so, brothers and sisters, what you're doing here as part of this local church, or perhaps another one, is you are helping to fulfill this plan to carry it forward in all sorts of ways. And let me, let me just say, importantly, to, that, that we understand that imaging Christ is a fully orbed thing. You image Christ as you pray and as you prepare dinner. You image Christ in adoring the triune God and through artistic endeavors. You image Christ through engineering and evangelism as you live and trust in Christ and all of the ways that we are and our gifts and who we are as we trust him and as we show what it looks like, what, what it looks like to have life in Christ in all these ways, that's the fulfillment of image in Christ. So you have a role to play in all these things together. We are part of a plan and God will accomplish that plan in maturing and multiplying the church. I'd love to get into this in more detail with you, but let me, and this is not a, a, a plug for me, but I wrote a book called Confessions of a 21st Century Martyr that helps flesh out this stuff. Uh, soon to be available on Amazon, free to you. I think we have copies to give you if you have questions to help you think through this. But it's important for, to, to understand the role we play in this plan. So let's jump to our next section, verses 16 and following. Paul continues to answer them. He says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. 
But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So Paul is using a metaphor to explain these things. And this next section calls us to not reviling but respect. It's an important truth in how we relate to the Jewish people that's laid out here. This is really important. Those who claim the name of Christ have in the past made grievous errors here, even murder and genocide. Not just in Hitler's day, but throughout history. And this paragraph clearly forbids this and promotes instead a humble regard and gratitude and respect towards the Jewish people. Sadly, the failure to follow this has done just the opposite of making Israel jealous, hasn't it? It's made many of our Jewish friends very, very skeptical of Christians and Christianity. And God uses his word to correct this, to bring repentance and a true image of Christ through his people. Paul uses uh, here in this section a metaphor, the metaphor of the tree. Before that, it's the metaphor of the first fruits and the dough. Uh, they would have understood, the Jewish people would have understood in the offering of grain, that the offering was a part of the whole, the whole all the, the offering was holy. And he speaks of the tree, this metaphor of the tree, that not only the root of the tree is holy, but the branches therefore are. What's the root of the tree? The root of the tree is the patriarchs. He's going to say later on in verses 28 and 29, they are beloved, speaking of the Jewish people, for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And so Paul is using the metaphor of the olive tree to speak of the people of Israel, ethnic Israel, by the way. And the root of ethnic Israel is the forefathers, right? Abraham, the promise to Abraham. Abraham believed God. And God counted to him his righteousness. And then through Isaac and Jacob, he continued these promises based on grace to redeem his people, to multiply the people on the earth. And what Paul is saying is that this tree, the root is holy. The root is the patriarchs, the people of God. And for the sake of the patriarchs, the, the, the tree belongs to God. And the branches are holy. And then he uses that, that metaphor to speak about the reality that we as Gentiles are actually grafted into that tree. There's the tree of God's people, and we as Gentiles get grafted in. We are not by nature the chosen people. When God looked on mankind, and mankind as a whole was running away, that's the story of mankind in the Bible, he pursued mankind, and he pursued mankind by pursuing people like Abraham and his descendants. And then inviting, of course, the rest of mankind to come, if they would, 
but he pursued them. He, he chose, he selected people out of the lostness and the rebellion of mankind to rescue them. That's the tree. And these forefathers believed God and, and God put, uh, related to them through covenants. And that tree is there and we are grafted into that tree. We are branches that are taken from a wild olive tree and grafted into that tree. And yes, indeed, we're a real part of that tree. But that should change our, our attitude, right? About how we understand our own faith and how we understand um, our salvation. We have been grafted into this amazing tree, this amazing legacy of, of promises and glory and goodness and mercy and grace. And we indeed are part of that tree, but we're not naturally part of that tree. Most of us, some of us might be Jewish. But we're not naturally part of that tree and we've been grafted in by grace. And so we shouldn't have an attitude to the tree. That's what Paul's saying. It makes no sense to think like, hey, we're in the tree and you're not. He carries forth the metaphor saying, yes, some branches have been broken off. There are people and segments of, of the Jewish world that are, are not in faith and not belonging to God in the covenant. But they were sovereignly broken off so that you could be grafted in. That's a reality. You have no right to think you're better. It's all of mercy. It's all of grace. And so we ought to have respect and gratitude, and we ought to fear the Lord. We recognize we're here by grace alone. And we ought not to, as Gentiles, say together, like, well, you know, hey, we're, it's pretty good. Here we are, you know, a Christian nation. We belong to God. We're God's people. And, and, and Paul's saying, don't do that. You don't presume. It's all of mercy. It's all of grace. You individually, you as a people as well. And God in his sovereignty will deal with all peoples people groups and he may have to break off some people groups as they take things for granted so there's a there's a reality the kindness of God is amazing but the severity of God you can't play games with God so don't be proud and don't look down your nose at those who don't believe and particularly the Jewish people instead have a great respect and gratitude and appreciation you've been adopted into the royal family Think about it, if you were adopted into the, the royal family of Britain, for some reason, say you're an orphan and you get adopted by them and you know, you're an older orphan, and you come into the family, you're not going to start like, you know, talking to Queen Elizabeth like, hey, Queenie, what's up? Elizabeth, what's up? Great to see you. You're not going to do that. You're going to be respectful. You're going to be grateful. You're going to appreciate, wow, I was an orphan and now I belong to this family. That's the idea. That's the sentiment here. And that should shape how we relate to Jewish people. They may not believe, but they are part of God's people. He has a plan for them. And we ought to be respectful and grateful for the heritage that we enjoy, that ultimately is their heritage that we've been grafted into. Finally, let's take a look at verses 25 to 32. I entitled this, not replacement, but realization. Not the replacement of Israel, but the realization of the promises of Israel. Verse 25 and following, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that, th that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. 
For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Paul is finishing this argument by going back to the same idea, after having used that metaphor. This idea that there's been a hardening that's come upon Israel for the sake of taking the gospel to the Gentiles, bringing in a full harvest before turning to a full harvest among the Jews. And indeed, that's what he's saying here. These promises from Isaiah and and off of Psalm 69, I think it is as well, speak clearly about the salvation he has. It's not just some sort of temporal blessing. It's not just some partial salvation. It's all of Israel, and it's profound. It says the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. That's the promise. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is speaking of salvation in Jesus. It's clearly full salvation for ethnic Israel that's going on, that's going to happen. That's what Paul's teaching here. Now he says there are enemies at this point in regards to the gospel, yes. As long as they're rejecting the gospel in regards to the gospel, they're going to oppose that. And probably no one knew that better than Paul himself, for he had been persecuted, been beaten and stoned even to death for the sake of the gospel. But they are elect and beloved as a nation. And, and the same mercy that he's shown to the Gentiles, he will turn and have more mercy on Israel. It's all of grace. It's all of grace alone. No one can make a claim on God. We all need a rescue. That's what it means when it says God has consigned all to disobedience. It doesn't mean God caused your disobedience. But God has, has been sovereign over that, the, the disobedience of mankind. He's sovereign over it. We have chosen our disobedience and run in it. And God is sovereign over that, but he has a plan. That's what it's saying. He's, he's consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. I don't think this is a promise of universal salvation, but a very broad salvation that all types, Jews and Gentiles, will be saved. And, and at the end, the full number of Gentiles, this countless number, and all of Israel as well. That's what God is saying through his word, through the Apostle Paul here. This is his plan. And he has a plan for Israel. He has not forgotten Israel. He's at work in these ways, and this chapter helps us understand it. I think we need to understand the wonder of God's faithfulness to preserve Israel, to preserve ethnic Israel. And and I could take a lot of time to talk about the, the, the wonder that this nation, that these people still exist. What other ancient people... Uh, in this way, have, have endured the centuries and re- retained their identity and, and retained, to some degree, their faithfulness. It's amazing that God has done this. It's because of chapter 11. It's because of the, the promise that there's a plan at work, that God will do it. About 100 years ago, Frederick the Great, king of Prussia, was having a discussion with his chaplain about the truth of the Bible. The king had become skeptical about Christianity, largely through the influence of, of Voltaire, the French atheist Voltaire. So he said to his chaplain, if your Bible is really true, it ought to be capable of very easy proof. So often when I've asked for proof of the inspiration of the Bible, I've been given some large tome that I have neither the time nor the desire to read. If your Bible is really from God, you should be able to demonstrate the facts simply. Give me proof for the inspiration of the Bible in a word. The chaplain replied, your majesty, it is possible for me to answer your request literally. I can give you the proof you asked for in one word. Frederick was amazed at this response. What is the magic word that carries such a weight of proof, he asked. Israel, said the chaplain. Frederick was silent. 
our God has preserved Israel, and he will fulfill his promises to them. And we get to be part of that plan with what we're doing here. We don't know how he will use us in the particulars, but we know generally how he will use us as we mature and multiply disciples and churches, as we seek the Lord in his grace for transformation in our lives to truly love one another and love our neighbor. He will cause us and the whole church to shine. He will bring in the whole number of Gentiles. And then at the end, he will bring in the full salvation of all Israel. And then the end will come. That's the plan. That's Romans 11. So let's take a moment as we transition. Maybe just to say, Lord, help me. Maybe there's been something that's distracted you from this plan. Maybe, maybe there's a better plan in your mind functionally that you're giving your life to. Maybe it's something that could be good but not fully good to be successful business-wise, to have a family, all these things that, that, are, that are part of God's plan, but maybe for you that's at the core of the plan. Maybe the Lord would want to speak to you right now and say, I have a plan. That's supposed to fit in my broader plan. And so maybe there's a distraction. Maybe there's just a, 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 the need for fresh faith to pursue the plan. The pandemic, I think, can make us skeptical about things and feel distanced from the church. But God has a plan. This, this pandemic is passing, will pass. God's plan will continue. So I just want to encourage you to take a minute now before Pastor Toby transitions transitions us to communion, just to talk to the Lord. Ask him for fresh faith. Tell him you're sorry for those distractions and any disobedience. Ask him to fill you with power to give yourself to his plan. <laughs>